Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Our goal is to find out what we believe and why we believe it. So that when someone comes teaching their false doctrine, I can go, that's hogwash, which is Greek for nonsense. It's not true. I like what Greg Laurie says. He says, if it's true, then it's not new. And if it's new, then it's not true. I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to come up with something new every time I, I come and speak to you. Searching and studying the scriptures are so important for our growth, our stability in Christ. Not only because we need the instruction we find in the scriptures to navigate our way through this life and through its storms, but also so we can recognize when someone proclaims false doctrine to be God's true word. We need to continue becoming more and more familiar with the foundation for our belief and our faith. Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson, with today's message out of 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 19. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word that we can not gather together and try to figure out who God is or what you're like randomly. But we all have this point of reference that we know as the Bible that you call the scriptures that we can study together to know what we believe and why we believe it. It is the foundation for what we believe. It is the plumb line. It's what keeps us straight. It's what allows us to not be swayed by false teaching. And we pray that we would be encouraged by what Peter says here today about your word. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First Peter and second Peter are a lot alike, but they are really drastically different as well. 1 Peter deals with attacks that come from the outside of the church. Persecution, sufferings, and struggles. Attacks from human enemies and attacks from a spiritual enemy. And tells us that we need to be patient, that we need to endure in the midst of those outward attacks that take place. We have a very real enemy who would love to destroy us. And he's just trying to, to shake your world up enough so that you throw your hands up in the air and say, I quit. It's really a waiting game. You got to outweigh him. That's first Peter. Second Peter is radically different because it's talking about enemies of the church, but it's not talking about enemies from without the church, men and Satan and attacks and suffering and persecution. But he's talking about from within the church, false teachers that rise up and say, I've got something that's new. I've got something that's exciting. I've got something that if you don't get a hold of, then you're not really serving and following God. Throughout the years of the church, false teachers have been many and have been varied. Paul knew when he left Ephesus. He gathered together with his disciples on the beach by Ephesus. The Bible says that he wept in front of them because he said, I know that when I leave, ravenous wolves are going to come in amongst you and men are going to rise up from yourself who are going to draw people to themselves. He knew that false teachers were going to come from two places. Number one is outside and they were going to see the church as an opportunity. They're predators. For the most part, these false teachers that come from without the church, they just want to make money. In the 80s, when all of the television evangelists began to fall and by 1990, almost every one of them had, it wasn't a shock that they were falling. It wasn't a shock that they fell into sin because all they were interested in was money. If you watch them during the 80s, then you know that. They're crying, their makeup's running, and that wasn't even Tammy Faye. <laughs> then there's her. 
just so they can take money. The false prosperity gospel. Hey, I, you know, God wants you rich and, and I'm rich. You know, I got a multi-million dollar house on a lake. I'm rich and, and it's okay for me to have that because we're supposed to be rich. And the more you give to me, the more you're going to have because I have a tenfold blessing or I have a 120-fold blessing from God. And if you give me the money, then you're going to be blessed yourself. And there are a lot of people that pull out the wallet and start giving him the money, somehow believing that they're going to receive a blessing. But even worse than those guys, to be quite frank, those guys are easy to combat against. It's really easy to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 that says that if anyone is teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, get away from them. That's what it says. It's really easy for us to say, stay away from them. They're teaching godliness as a means of financial gain. And then it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Really easy to combat that. It's a little harder when they're in your midst. People that you know and love, people that you trust, that all of a sudden begin to teach their own thing. Or maybe they've got to a group and they've gotten this idea and now they start to teach the idea in the church. And we've had that happen on several occasions. And to me, they are the most painful because they're people that I love and have ministered with. They're ones who I count as a co-laborer in Christ. And when they have begun to try to draw people over to themselves, and of course, when we challenge them on what they believe, they go down the street and start a church that's just down the street because their whole goal the whole time was to draw people to themselves. And I've never been worried about it, by the way. I've never been worried that they've gone down the street and started a church because God's the one who's established this here. And the Bible says what God establishes, no man can destroy. But that's exactly what happens. It has happened before. And if the Lord tarries long enough, and I stay in the pulpit long enough, which I plan for another 30 or 40 years, by the way, just so you know, it'll happen again. There will be someone that will rise up in our midst, somebody that we trust, somebody who will begin to teach something that is bizarre. And for that reason, we have to know what the Bible says. We have to know what our guidelines are. Why do we believe what we believe? Is it just random? Was it just Chuck Smith who started Calvary Chapel and, or took over a Calvary Chapel in 1960-whatever it was? And it's what he believed, so that's what we believe because we're Calvary Chapel? Not at all. It's the foundation of the Word of God. That we have the Word of God as it has the highest spot for us as far as what we believe. It does not have the highest spot for us in worship. That's Jesus. People have said of Calvary Chapel, well, Calvary Chapel just worships the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. I've said before, I don't know if I mind that criticism so much that they would think that we, we put so much of a weight on the Bible that they would think that we worship it, but we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus who is revealed in the Bible. Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. And our goal is to find out what we believe and why we believe it so that when someone comes teaching their false doctrine, I can go, that's hogwash, which is Greek for nonsense. It's not true. I like what Greg Laurie says. He says, if it's true, then it's not new. And if it's new, then it's not true. I'm glad that I don't have to come up with something new every time I, I come and speak to you. I was part of the Pentecostal church uh, in my 20s and even beginning as a youth pastor in the Pentecostal church. And I can tell you there's pressure when you're bringing a message to bring something new that you have studied the scriptures yourself and that God has revealed something to you. It's special revelation. And I want to show you what God has shown me. I couldn't imagine having to get up week after week. We do seven services a week. 
I couldn't imagine 30 years of several services a week having to come up with something new, having to wow you guys. I'm glad I don't have to knock your socks off ever. I don't have to come out here and, and, and say something that you know, whoa, that was really incredible. I think I'm going to go to this church now because that was phenomenal. It was new. It was exciting. It's great. Instead, you're like, oh, he teaches the word. It's the word of God. Heard it before. Hear it again. He did a good job. Cover the word of God. That's what I got to do. And I got to knock your socks off. And, well, you know, glad your socks are on, but I just got to teach the word. I just got to bring the word of God because that's what's going to strengthen you. That's what's going to get you to know what is true. And quite frankly, we talk about a lot of things that we talked about before because we're covering scriptures that say something that an earlier scripture said before. But like Peter's going to tell us, I'm not worried about that. But we want to know what we believe and we want to believe the truth. I want to believe the truth. I really like Ken Ham. I'm going to be a little critical of him now. That's why I started it that way, if you're wondering. I really like Ken Ham. I think he does a great job as a spokesman for creationism and battling against evolution. I think he does a phenomenal job with it. I think God has raised him up for that very purpose. But I was a little disappointed, and trust me, he's not upset that I was disappointed, okay? I was a little disappointed at the end of the debate with Bill Nye when he was asked the question, is there any evidence that you could be shown that would make you believe evolution? And also Bill Nye was asked that question. And both of them answered it the same way. No, there's no evidence that could be shown that would make me believe and be a Christian, Bill Nye said. And Ken Ham said, no, there's no evidence that would make me be an evolutionist. Now, we might be able to set him down and ask him why he said that. And he might have a different reason for why he said it than what I'm attributing to him. But for me, I want to know the truth. And if you can show me evidence that evolution is true, then I will believe evolution. If you can show me evidence, here's the thing. I've asked for it from this very spot on several occasions. Give me the proof that evolution is true. If it is true, then give it to me. I want to know. And so people will say, well, there, there's natural selection and that's proof of evolution. I reject your evidence. Natural selection is nothing more than adaptation. There's a fox up in the Arctic that when it snows, its coat will turn white. And then in the spring, it turns brown. He's adapting to his environment. That's adaptation. That is not only brought about, like you say, by natural selection, but could have been the thing that a creator gave to that fox to protect that fox. And in fact, when you go back to the fossil record, you have no evidence of an intermediate kind of a anything, whatever you want to call it. It never goes from a cat to a dog. Or when you go back in man's lineage, they've got all of these Australia pithesis and all of these different, you know, men that they say that they found. And when you go back to looking at what they found, they found a piece of a skull. They found a tooth. They found a, a part of a finger. They found uh, something that they named something else, but falls into what would be a human today. Every bit of it would be human today. There's people that have skulls that are the same shape as the skulls that they found. And so if you have the man monkey, if you have the missing link, they don't want to talk about the missing link anymore because evidence should have shown the missing link by now. And if the missing link is still missing now, then it tells us something. I want to know the truth. I want to follow the truth. I don't want to put my fingers in my ear and go, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. Church at one time, by the way, it's said that Christians used to believe that the world was flat. Scientists believed that it wasn't. That's not true. Scientists believed that the world was flat. They just happened to be Christians at the same time. 
There was a time you go back far enough and all, all scientists were Christians. And I'm not saying that the church didn't start to attack scientists because they did. And I'm not saying that the church didn't become scared. What science might discover that might challenge us in our faith? And so they tried to, who did they arrest? I'm, you know, the list of who didn't they arrest back in the day when science was budding, they began to notice that there was a solar system. They made, um, they made one of the famous scientists recant uh, what he had said, even though he knew all along that he was right. But when you go back in the Bible, the Bible says that God hung the earth on nothing, like a circle in the sky. The Bible doesn't say the earth is flat. I love when people are arguing with me, they're an evolutionist, they say, well, you guys believe the world is flat because the Bible says the world's flat. I always say, where? I got a Bible. You want to show me? Let's Google it. Because you can always Google things now, right? Let's Google it. Let's Google it. Come on, let's Google it. Let's see if there's any passage in the Bible that says that the earth is flat. Because it doesn't. The Bible's not even a scientific book. And when it ventures into the realm of science, it is accurate. I'm not talking about seeing things from men's perspective. Like when it says the sun rises. When you get up in the morning, here we are living in the day that you and I are living in, the very advanced scientific day, and you say, what a beautiful sunset. And I could say to you, oh, you poor ignorant fellow. Don't you know that the earth is moving around the sun and spinning? What you ought to say is, what a beautiful earth spin. That's why the sun is, the sun's not actually setting. We're moving around the sun and, and you, you know, you're, so the Bible says some things like that and people go, oh, the Bible's so ignorant. It's just looking at it from man's perspective. But when the Bible ventures into the realm of science, like hydrology in the book of Job, it says that the water goes up in droplets, moves over the mountains, comes back down onto the ground and back into the ocean again. It described hydrology hundreds of years, thousands of years before we Modern man understood hydrology, understood evaporation. The Bible describes it. Some say, well, that was just a shot in the dark. That's a happy coincidence. Well, all right. Uh, if you want to think it's a happy coincidence, think that it's a happy coincidence. I'll go along with you on that, but it ain't wrong. It's right. And the word of God claims that it knows the truth. The word of God claims that it has what we need and what we have, and it shows proof. Now, Peter, after speaking to us about our entrance into heaven and the kind of men and women that we ought to be and living godly lives with great virtues will make us not barren and fruitful. We're going to reproduce. People are going to get saved if we do this. And we're going to bless people. We're going to have fruit. And then he says that we're going to have a great entrance into heaven. And that's verse 11. I want to read that. He says, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love to think of the day when I will have that grand entrance into heaven. I don't know when that day will be. I don't know if it'll be a year or five years or 20 years, or I'm hoping I'm not a hundred and something when it happens. Somewhere between now and then, maybe leaning towards then. That's, my, that's, that's me. But there will come a day when I will have that grand entrance into heaven. And I love that Peter points that out. And then Peter says, for this reason, because one day you are going to have a grand entrance into heaven, he says, and I'm going to have it. And now he's beginning to think about his entrance into heaven because he knows that as he grows older, he's going to be bound and he's going to be killed because Jesus told him that he was going to be. Remember in the end of the book of John, he says, when you're young, you go where you want to go. But when you're older, someone is going to bound you and take you where you don't want to go. And then Peter responds by turning around, looking at John. What about him? Sometimes we get more concerned about other people's walk than our own. And he says, never mind about him. If he's going to live until I come back again, that what is that to you? You follow me. So we're not, I don't have to run your race. You don't have to run my race. I just got to run my race and you got to run your race. 
And so he now brings that up. He says, for this reason, I will not neglect to remind you always of these things that you know and are established in the present truth. He says, you know when you're established in this and I'm not going to neglect to remind you of it. Again, it gives me boldness to come to you and teach the word of God. And here we are in 2 Peter. We went through 2 Peter a decade ago. We're going through it again. And I don't have any qualms about it at all. If you go back and listen to the old study, it's probably a lot like this study. I don't have any qualms about it. And Peter was saying the same thing. I'm not afraid to remind you of the truth that you already know. Yes, he says in verse 13, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent, he means his body. He was a big man, a tent. The Bible actually talks about the body in the terms of a tent. It's just a place where we are for now. He says to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. This tells us the things that he's going to say in this book are very important. It's one of the reasons that I believe that Second Peter is so powerful. It's an observation. It's not that what he says here, this is some of the last things I'm ever going to write. That's not what gives it power. It's powerful. And the observation is the reason it's so powerful is because Peter knew he was dying. He knew he was going to die. And so he's giving the last words here and they're powerful. And in chapter two, he goes after false teachers. I mean, goes after them. So he wants to show us what our foundation is to fight them in chapter one. He says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. I'm going to carefully write them down is what he's saying. So you will always have a reminder after I die. Here we are thousands of years later. We're studying Peter's words. We have a reminder from Peter. Then verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. The word for fables there is the word that we get the word myths from. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He'd heard the rumors from the very beginning people attacked. Oh, you guys are Christians. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, don't you know that those disciples made it up? They got together and they made it up. Peter says, I didn't make it up. We didn't make it up. We're eyewitnesses of these very things. Now, eyewitness accounts are extremely important. You can have one witness that witnesses a crime and no other evidence and have that person sentenced to death in the United States. That's how strong eyewitness evidence is. You can never just slough off eyewitness evidence, especially if it is tangible. If it's something that you can put your hands on, you can't slough it off. And you can't do it when there's more, when there's more witnesses that take the witness stand. Peter in a little while is going to say, we heard the voice from heaven. It wasn't just me. Part of the power that we have in the word of God is that it was written during the days while people were still alive during the events so that people could have read it and said, that's not right. That's not the way it happened. It was written during those days. Because the Bible, you know, a lot of people point out the inconsistencies in the scriptures. And we could talk about that and we've done it before. There are 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 24,000 manuscripts in the New Testament. This goes back to uh, things that were written before copiers. And there are good manuscripts and there are bad manuscripts. Can't remember why I was bringing that point up. But let me go back here. Moreover, I will carefully ensure you always of this same reminder that we do not follow Cullen Vice Staples. Okay, so you've got these guys with their, with their testimony and they write their testimony while there's people alive. 
the manuscripts go back and the oldest piece of manuscript evidence that we have is 125 years from 90 to 125. Now follow me because I know I lost you when I had to get my mind back on this again. Follow what I'm saying now. Critics for hundreds of years and decades said that the New Testament wasn't written until three or 400 AD because it's got too much miraculous stuff in it. It's too put together for an ancient book. It had to be worked on. It had to be written well after the fact of Christianity. It speaks too much about what happened in Christianity. However, they've discovered manuscripts that go all the way back to the second century and one of them that is dated all the way back to the first century. We're talking about 99 and before. If we have a piece of Mark that can be dated between 90 and 125, the thought that you have a piece of the original, there has to be copies of copies of copies already for you to get a piece of one that's dated back that far. That the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were hidden in 66, have several fragments that make references to the New Testament. Tells us that the New Testament goes back to at least 66. And you can criticize that it would be farther, but you got to go back to that manuscript evidence. But here's the thing. This evidence has been found recently within the last, say, 50 years. Yeah, maybe 60, maybe 65 years. These pieces of evidence have been found and still professors aren't changing it. They're still saying, well, the New Testament was written three to 400 years A.D. And not hanging on to the to the truth or not changing things. They're hanging on to that which they believe before. He says, moreover, or verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where, where does Peter put his focus when he's talking about being an eyewitness? When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says later on, he's going to say in the last days, scoffers are going to arise and scoff is coming. We've known for years that people were going to scoff the coming of Jesus. I always thought it would be outside of the church, but now the scoffing's coming from inside of the church. Listen, one day the sky will part and Jesus will come through in all of his glory. And Peter says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These come from the word of God. These are Old Testament passages that have been fulfilled. And he says, we saw them. He says, I saw a preview in verse 17. Well, let's go back to 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, I saw it. I saw when he was transformed. He's not just saying, I saw Jesus raise someone from the dead or I saw Jesus do a miracle. or I saw Jesus feed the 5,000. He's saying, I saw him transformed. He says in verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from heaven the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, in Matthew, early on in Matthew, it says, Jesus says to his disciples, some of you here will not die until the son of man comes in his glory. When I was 14 years old, I received Christ into my life and I began to read the Bible. And when I read that, some of you here will not die until the son of man comes in his glory. It confused me because those guys were all dead. I knew that. And so I kind of pushed it aside. When I got a chance, I asked my youth pastor, what does it mean? He goes, well, read on. And so the very next thing that happens is that he takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountaintop. And while he's there, his robe gets as bright as any launderer could make it. And he is there in his glory so that those who were there who were alive saw him in his glory. 
thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.